Have you ever worked on a team comprised of people from all over the world and wondered why you were having difficulty communicating and getting work done? That's because every culture has their own way of communicating. Today, we'll chat about how different cultures communicate, give negative feedback, make decisions, and perceive time in the hopes that you can improve your team collaboration. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry. AWS Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps using their framework or technology of choice on the front end. Using Amplify, you can quickly get up and running with things like hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL, serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. Amplify is built especially in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers like myself to be successful because they can use their existing skill set to build real-world full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around back-end, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. The Amplify console then allows you to use the GitHub repository to deploy a globally available CDN with CI and CD built in. To learn more, visit aws-amplify.github.io. Okay, so let's preface this episode with kind of, not a disclaimer, I guess, but let's just acknowledge a burning question that people might have during conversations about how culture impacts our collaboration as a human um, or our communication as a human. And, you know, the question of, well, doesn't talking about culture cause us to stereotype? Um, And I just want to say that, like, while it's really important for us to recognize everyone's individuality and not look at everyone from a certain culture as having the same characteristics, it'd be a little bit naive of us to completely disregard culture, right? Because when we don't consider the impact of culture on an individual, we tend to view every interaction with them through our own cultural lens and how we were raised and things like that. Um, Because the culture that we're raised impacts the ways that we collaborate and communicate. So that was just kind of like my little bit of a preface getting into this. Um, But yeah, I'm excited to share this with y'all because I've given this talk a few times. Um, Allie was actually the first person to see this talk because I wrote it for All Things Open last year in Raleigh. Um, So yeah, I'm really, I'm excited. Have y'all worked with people from different cultures? I definitely did, especially when I was working at CDC, because they have, uh, they, the federal government is really interesting because in terms of like becoming an employee of the government, it is a very difficult process. It's a very long and drawn out process. So a lot of the people who work for the federal government are actually working as a contractor for, and working as an employee for another company. So inside at the CDC, everyone had, and maybe they've changed it at this point, everyone had a different badge based on whether you were a real, like a real employee. Um, that was in quotes. Um, you were an employee, you were a contractor, you were a, I think I had a different color when I was like, a, because I was a fellow. And I don't know, all kinds of like really interesting differentiations, but all that to mean a lot of people coming from all different, all different backgrounds, all different cultures. So that was, that really was a really cool experience to work with so many different cultures. That's awesome. I have to an extent, but I've also mostly worked on really small geolocated teams. So teams that are all located in the same place. So probably less than both of you. Uh, Until now. (laughs) Until like three (laughs) weeks ago. (laughs) Yeah, that's totally fair. 
Um, just for anyone listening, because I guess I wasn't super versed on what exactly culture means. And it's just a, a term that encompasses the social behavior and social societal norms found in different societies across the globe. So this covers things like knowledge, beliefs, communication, how they perceive time and things of that nature. Um, cool. Let's, we're going to talk about four different areas today. And this conversation was really sparked by one of my favorite books of all time called The Culture Map. It's by Erin Meyer. And she's done lots of research. So if you're interested in learning more based on our episode today, highly recommend you check it out. And we'll mention at the end of this episode, we are going to be doing a giveaway for that book. But today we're going to be talking about four different areas as it pertain to different cultures and how they essentially live their lives. Um, But there are actually eight, and we'll talk about the last three at the end. We're going to start off with communication. And, you know, I'll talk, I'll ask you, Kelly, um, because you are in more of a managerial position. When you think of a good communicator as it pertains to your team, what kind of traits do you see in someone? Oh, putting me on the spot. I think, especially in terms of, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here and, uh, in terms of what you're going to be talking about, but understanding how your team communicates in general, each individual has a different kind of communication style, and you as a manager has have a very specific communication style as well in, in recognizing those individual differences and in the way that you're communicating with them in a way that is going to resonate with that with the team member you happen to be communicating with at that given time. I think, and I think I, I, this might be a weird thing to say, but I think a really important part of communication is also the listening side of things. So you learn a lot more if you just kind of stop talking and listen before responding and talking at somebody. We're going to we're gonna get to that because it's very important. Um, as an American, when I think about what good communication means, I think about someone who is very explicit in what they mean. They express their thoughts clearly, very simply. And you'll notice they're very redundant. They, I say they as if I'm not part of it. Uh, We are very redundant. So like typically if you get off a meeting, people will send a follow-up email just to kind of like reiterate what was agreed on or like who's responsible for what. Um, And this is what we call low context communication. So the messages are expressed clearly. There's no hidden meaning. Uh, You just take it at face value. But like while we as Americans would perceive someone with those characteristics as being a good communicator. Not all cultures view these characteristics as good communication. And this is maybe why you're getting some friction. Um, In contrast, many Asian cultures like India, China, Japan, and Indonesia, they value communicators who are actually implicit. And this, to your point, Kelly, require listeners to read between the lines or read the air is what they would say. Um, These are high-context communication cultures. So the messages are implied, but they're not spoken explicitly. I find that very interesting. I think, yeah, that's super interesting and, and often something we don't think about. And especially with getting to the point I mean, that can be taken in multiple different ways um, and in terms of how blunt you're being as well, which is definitely a cultural thing too. Well, we'll get to that in the next section when we talk about <laughs> providing negative feedback. And I have a lot to <laughs> like, I have a lot of experience in like interacting with people from different cultures because I've now lived in two different European countries, three if you consider my study abroad experience. Um, and I struggled with this a lot when I began my job in Germany in particular. So how can you actually tell 
how different cultures communicate. And this is really interesting. What she, what Erin Meyer does in her book, and this is why I recommend people read the physical book and as opposed to the audio book, because she has these charts where she plots on a scale from low context to high context cultures, and she'll list the countries on the scale. It's a linear scale. And what you typically would do is you would find your culture on this scale and map it to another like culture where you have a colleague that you're working with. So for example, while Americans and people from the UK, and when I say Americans, I mean people from the United States. Um, so if you have uh, someone from the United States and someone from the United Kingdom working together, well, they're both technically considered low context cultures. So you would assume that they get along really well. They can understand each other. But if you look at the scale that Erin Meyer provides in her book, you'll see that people from the UK fall towards the right side of the people from the, U- the United States, which means if you look at the relative positioning of the UK versus uh, people from America, People from the UK, they communicate at a higher context, which means people from the US might not understand their sense of humor, for example. But if someone from Brazil looks at someone from the UK or someone from America, someone from Brazil is higher context, right? They're reading between the lines. And they would look at both people from the UK and people from the US as being overly explicit. Um, And so it's very interesting. And this is why I recommend uh, if you are working with people from all over the world, you take a look at this kind of scale. Because for me, Working with Germans, for example, they're very explicit, but I was still having these like miscommunication issues uh, and people thought I was overly explicit and overly communicative. And this is why. One other thing that's really interesting is that if you come from a high context culture, so someone from Brazil or um, Indonesia, and you work with someone from the US, for example, you might perceive your American colleague to be a little bit condescending in the way that they communicate with you because they're very explicit, they're redundant. Uh, And you might perceive that as them putting you down. And realistically, it's just how we communicate as we're brought up in the American culture Um, versus like if you as an American or we as Americans have worked with people from higher context cultures and they don't communicate as explicitly uh, and they, when they speak, they intend us to read between the lines and we don't, we can perceive them as being a little bit shady or like not being transparent. And this is where we get a lot of these, uh, a lot of this friction on multicultural teams. Have y'all ever had this happen before where you're on a team and you just feel like no one is communicating properly? You're like, you walk away with an understanding of what you think the next steps of a project are. And then you come to find out later, like someone else interpreted it differently. Yes, for sure. All the time. Yeah, that's really hard. But I think what the most interesting part about communication style for me was, was realizing that the history of a culture impacts its communication style. This is so fascinating. So let's take um, high context cultures like China and India. They have a long shared history. So they're really focused on relationship oriented societies. And you typically will have traditions passed down from generation to generation. But when we look at the US, which is possibly the lowest context culture in terms of communication, America is only a few hundred years old. And it was impacted by a multitude of immigrants from all over the world. And all of these immigrants had different shared histories and languages. So if people wanted to communicate in the United States, they had to be very explicit. And we can see this reflected in the language of a culture as well. English, I didn't realize this before I moved abroad, but languages have different um, languages have different numbers of words. And like it makes sense. It's not something I ever consciously thought about. Uh, So for example, English, because we're low context, we uh, have over 500,000 words in the English language. But French, which is a higher context culture, has only 135,000 words. So you can see that like people who speak French are expected to read between the lines. They have less words. So the same word can mean multiple things. Uh, I found that like super cool. It's also like, 
it kind of explains why we struggle so much to write our papers and everything in grade school and why we have up some kind of uh, thesaurus to choose a different word because there are so many words to choose from that mean the same exact thing. Quite the opposite of what the the case is in French. I wonder if writing your papers in, in French, like growing up as a grade school student, would be easier compared to writing them in English as a somebody based in the U.S., for example. Obviously, I have no way of testing this because you're in one place, you're in the other place, but... I don't know about easy. I feel like easy is subjective. Oh, totally. Right? So, like, yeah, you might have less words, but that means you have to, like, carefully think about how you need to portray the combination of words to make your point. I think this also ties into our outliers discussion from last season. Maybe we can link that. And especially the number system, I keep thinking of that. And how that differs from country to country. And my boyfriend knows a lot of Korean. And he was explaining their accounting system. I was like, that makes so much more sense. I think that they should, or they should change our number system. That's so much easier. I know. It's so strange. Well, if you're still, like, not convinced about, like, these long shared histories impacting the communication style of culture, just take that analogy of like two people who've been married for 50 years. They don't need to be super explicit in their communication. They probably communicate through body language. And, you know, if they say one thing, you know, their partner knows it means another. But two people who are newlyweds who've only been together for, you know, a few months, a a few years, they need to be a little bit more explicit in their communication. Um, I loved that analogy because I thought it really brought it back down to the real world and like things that we might have experienced. Okay, so... If you have people from different cultures working on the same team, how do you actually go about communicating effectively? This is like a super important point. Um, I'm curious what both of you would think. So I'm going to give you a little quiz. So let's say we have a team with two Americans working together or an American and someone from the UK. They're both low context cultures. They're very explicit. Let's say we have someone from America working with someone from Brazil. So you have a high context and a low context working together. And then someone from Brazil working with someone from India. So they're two high context cultures. Who do you think is going to have the most difficult time communicating? That's a good question. I would assume that it'd be harder for the one who is low context to speak at a high context level, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like, I assume that American would have a more difficult time communicating. Allie? Or the the one speaking English. I pre-read the show notes, so I'm spoiled. I'm sorry. Okay, so don't... (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good. You were prepared, unlike Kelly. Um, Oh! Maybe I didn't want to cheat. (laughs) Nah. Um, This actually surprised me a lot. So, the two coworkers who would have the most difficult time communicating are two people from two different high context cultures. So someone from Brazil and someone from China would have massive miscommunication because let's take this like completely eliminated. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that they would be get along, but here's get along that they would be effective in communicating. Um, (laughs) This is why if we have two couples, both have been married for 50 years and you take one partner from each and you put them together, they're not going to have any idea how to communicate together right? So while they can communicate really well within their same culture, you put them with another high context culture and it's like game over because they don't understand the nuances of each other's communication style. Makes sense. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Okay. So how do we actually communicate on a multicultural team? 
If you're working on a multicultural team, you have to employ low-context communication and processes. It's really the only effective way to get people on the same page. So what this means is you need to be explicit and you need to be redundant. So you should have a meeting and then after the meeting, follow up, be it per email, per Slack, you know, whatever tool you're using, just to clarify who's doing what and when it's due. You need to be overly explicit. Um, But I think it's also important, just have the conversation with your team that, hey, everyone's going to, you know, used to communicating differently, but these are the the protocols for our team that we want to use. That's what I actually recommend doing, especially if you're you're freelancing. That's one of the big things is after you get off of a phone call with a lead, always recap that that conversation in an email. Always, always, always. so helpful when yeah, people do that. For sure. Cool. So Kelly touched on something earlier, being providing negative feedback to someone. This is a huge area of, I'm losing my English. Like I can't even communicate effectively. Um, contention. That's the word I was looking for. This is a huge source of contention for people who don't understand how different cultures give direct negative feedback or indirect negative feedback. So while every culture actually believes in constructive criticism, it's really important that you note that what's viewed as constructive changes from culture to culture. So while someone from Germany understands what's constructive to another German, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can use the same method of constructive criticism to someone from Denmark. Um, And so let's talk a little bit about this. Very much like there were high and low context cultures for communication, there are two different values for evaluating. So direct negative feedback cultures this is what you would think of when someone is very, very blunt to the point. They don't fluff it up. Um, yeah, this is uh, something I experienced in Germany when I moved. Um, it was really hard for me to receive constructive criticism from my German coworkers because they were used to being very direct uh, in their feedback and they didn't mean anything personally by it. And I instantly took it personally and like got offended. <laughs> Well, in the U.S., we don't give negative feedback in that way. No, we're too busy giving the shit sandwich. That, oh my God, that's the perfect word for that. I didn't come up with it. It's from Radical Candor. Oh, okay. I was going to say, like, that perfectly describes it. Um, But you'll notice this, someone from a direct negative feedback culture, that they use a lot of words that, like, upgrade it. Um, They're called upgrader words. So these are words like absolutely, totally, and strongly. So, like, this is absolutely unprofessional um, and things of that nature. In the U.S., it's different. We'll get to that in a second. But there are cultures called indirect negative feedback cultures. So, well, I guess this is technically how the U.S. would call it, indirect negative feedback culture. So this is the shit sandwich to Kelly's point. Um, You want to explain what that is, Kelly? Yeah. So basically, it's sandwiching negative feedback between two more positive things to say. And also, I do want to correct myself. I learned about it from Radical Candor, but Ben Horowitz was the one who came up with it. So you always, it basically it means you would lead in with something positive and then switch to some kind of like negative, you know, or just co- more constructive feedback and then kind of like back up and be like, but everything is still okay. And, you know, it, it's, 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 you're again, it's being very indirect with giving that feedback. Yeah. And, and not only that, they use words like downgrade or words. So things that kind of, um, Proceed the negative feedback to soften the blow. So, you know, this was kind of unprofessional. They wouldn't even say unprofessional in the U.S., I feel like. Like, you would just be like, yeah, like, maybe next time. It's kind of a weird thing to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, these words that just kind of uh, reduce the bluntness of it. Exactly. I guess. It's to lighten the blow. Yeah, exactly. My The most interesting cultures for me are those who fall in high-context communication 
like China, Brazil, and Japan, but that provide indirect negative feedback. This is so interesting to me because, okay, let's take an example. So let's say you're working with your Japanese coworker and he submits a 20 slide presentation for you to review before a big presentation. And the first like 15 slides look super great, but the last five look a little bit sloppy and kind of rushed. You should not give him direct feedback. First of all, you should give this feedback in private because people from these cultures do not give direct negative. They don't give negative feedback in in front of others. It's just disrespectful. Um, Not only that, you should just say what was good and omit the bad. This is so interesting to me because where in the U.S. we would probably say like, hey, Kelly, you know, like, do you mind just taking a look again at these five last five slides? Like, they don't look great. Something like that. But I love the first 15. Um, You did a great job. Right. So that's how we would say it in the U.S. probably. Someone from uh, a, a direct negative feedback culture like Germany would be like, you need to fix the last five slides. They they need some work. Someone from a high context communication uh, culture and an indirect negative feedback culture like Brazil, China, and Japan, you would say the first 15 slides look great. And that's it. And you wouldn't mention the last five slides because what that that allows them to say, okay, the first 15 were great, but that that means I need to go work on the last five. So you don't even need to acknowledge the last five. Just omit it from your positive feedback and they will be able to understand. That's really interesting. Actually, pulling back in outliers conversation uh, in terms of providing feedback in that same high context, uh, indirect feedback. Um, it happened with the, the airline crashes because the second in command never wanted to explicitly say, an an adjustment needs to be made. And it actually Mm -hmm. resulted in more plane crashes. And kind of interesting, they had an American come in to train the team to learn how Americans provide that kind of feedback and it significantly reduced the the percentage of planes crashing. So that just goes back to the point of like, we just assume everyone communicates the same way we do. And it's just so not true. And I also, like, I feel kind of weird about it. Like, I'm really glad that it actually did help. But also, it's just kind of weird to be like, all right, let me teach the American way. Yeah. It seems very, like, U.S.-centric. But, um, I mean, like, if you were going to work in an Asian culture, like, you would have to go through the same type of um, training, essentially, or you wouldn't be able to effectively communicate with people. It's just... Um, but it doesn't just impact uh, giving negative feedback and and communicating. It also impacts decisions and how you make decisions at work. Um, this was very interesting to me being... I said that like a drink every time I say this was very interesting. Are you trying to kill me? <laughs> um, this is something I actually did notice when I moved to Germany. Um was how they made decisions. So both cultures, both people from Germany, people from America, view each culture as being extremely hierarchical in nature, it's meaning that they follow strict protocols and procedures. But these misconceptions are really just fostered from a lack of cultural decision-making and misunderstanding that. So as Americans, we're rooted in these egalitarian principles where we essentially advocate for equality of all people, uh, and we inherently believe this is a core value of American culture, which this we could go on a huge tangent with because I don't agree with that statement. But she does make this statement in the book. I don't agree with it. But I would say like when the traditional American view, like you would think, oh, equality for everyone. It doesn't exist, right? Like let's not beat around the bush. America does not currently today treat all people equally. Um, but that is, but that's something that they 
we as a country had prided, is that the word we prode, we prided <laughs> ourselves on? Is I guess prided. Um, was it's, equality for all. Would pride ourselves on. There we go. Yes. Thank you. So that was something we would see as a core American culture, right? But Air quotes, by the way. Yeah, right. Um, the Germans perceive Americans to be extremely hierarchical in decision-making process. And this is because German culture actually places more emphasis on group consensus than American culture. So being in Germany, I would notice like my team would get together for like three hours to debate the best way to tackle a problem. But here's the difference. Once we actually made that decision in Germany, it stuck and we did not change it. In America, it's pretty common to like have a short conversation about how you want to tackle a problem or a project and to start work immediately. And then it's okay to shift gears later down the line. Like that's normal. Um, and it's pretty normal in the US too for like the boss to come in and like veto the whole thing. And basically everyone has to kind of fall in line. Um, so yeah, it's all cultures are different. Like we've got consensual decision-making and we've got hierarchical decision-making. Um, and it's pretty important to understand how different cultures make these decisions. It can impact how your projects, how successful your projects are. Um, I think that there's definitely a country culture thing, but I think it also may be a company culture thing to some extent as well, that there are like flat companies and companies with more hierarchy and the, different team dynamics on every team that you're on as well. Like I've definitely noticed that some teams, it's like you talk forever about something rather than just doing the thing or um, trying to do the thing. And then coming back to the discussion once you have a little bit more information, but I've definitely noticed that. I do remember like my German coworkers complaining that like the Americans would change course, like, a third of the way through the project and then change it again, two thirds of the way through the project. And like, that's just normal, like in iteration. But this again, goes back to the history of the culture. This is very interesting. Oh, drink. Okay. Um, pioneers who fled the Europe began a new life in America. They placed value on speed and individualism. So it's all about being first and working hard, even if you made mistakes and that was okay. So as a result, American culture began to develop a disdain for too much discussion because it felt like it slowed them down uh, and, and it was all about being fast. Um, so that's that's pretty much why in the U.S. it's so common to like make a quick decision and change later on if you need to, but it's not common in other cultures to do that. So For startups move fast, break things. No, yeah, I think startup culture originated in the U.S. I bet. Like, the heavy startup culture. Yeah, if you're working with a team from, you know, a global team from with people from both consensual decision-making cultures as well as hierarchical or top-down decision-making cultures, just talk about it. Like, you again, you should have, like, a social contract within your team that really outlines how you want to collaborate together, and this should help everyone get along. I think that's what's most important, though, is having that conversation up front and deciding what's going to make the most sense for your group because it's going to be different from one group to the next. Yeah. For sure. I was on a team that didn't um, get along so well and had a lot of clashing personalities. And we ended up having like a group norming session of what our values were as a team and what communication practices we should follow. And I found that that really helped a lot of being explicit. Like, here's how we're going to communicate. Here's how we're going to decide how meetings are held. Here's how we're going to communicate with this person because they don't deal well with X and Y. I think that really helped make it at least bearable. I agree. As as everyone says, like, 
communication is key in any kind of relationship. And it's not just, you know, romantic relationships. It's your friendships. It's your coworker relationships. It is every kind of relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of relationships, let's talk a little bit about trust. This was the most fascinating section for me, I believe. I learned so much in this section of the book because trust is a foundational element of any type of relationship. But how different cultures trust and how that affects your personal relationship with your coworkers is really, really important. We have two different types of trust. We have cognitive trust and affective trust. So cognitive trust is just rooted in the confidence that you have in someone else's ability to get their job done. So is Kelly going to finish her um, her task for the sprint before the release? You know, that, that would be an example of cognitive trust. Um, the answer is no. Kelly doesn't deploy on Fridays, so she would get it done by Thursday. That's right. Um, <laughs> um, effective trust, in contrast, is just a root. It's rooted in the emotional closeness that you have from developing a friendship or personal relationship with someone else. Um, I think it's important to note a- here, we're talking affect, not effect. Yes, affect. Uh, I can't even say it. Like it, They're both pronounced effective, yeah. but we're talking about the one with an A. So what's really notable, I'm not going to say interesting for the rest of this, um, what's notable is that in America, we draw a line between cognitive and effective trust because we're ta- we were typically taught to separate emotional from um, the practical side of work relationships. So mixing the two is kind of often see- perceived as unprofessional. But if you go to uh, a relationship-based trust culture, like uh, in China, for example, managers intertwine these types of trust. So they're likely to develop personal relationships with someone uh, when there's also a business relationship. So you can actually build like these task-based, you can build up task-based trust through professional activities, work, you know, and things like that. Um, And this would be uh, cultures like the US, the Netherlands, and Denmark. They're very task-based trust-oriented. So we focus on someone's professional abilities. But relationship-based trust um, is very fascinating to me. So you notice, and I, I do like remember hearing stories about this where like you you would go out to dinner. Um, let's say you're going, you went to Brazil or to Saudi Arabia. Let's say you went to Saudi Arabia on a business trip with your coworkers and after work, they all want to go out to dinner and drinks. This is an important part of building your rapport with your team members, whether you realize it or not. Um, relationship-based trust is built through sharing meals and drinks with someone. So yeah, I just, I mean, like, I never thought about that. I would just assume like if I went to to visit, you know, someone from a different culture that like professionally that I didn't have to go out to dinner or drinks with them after, but it seems as though this is where a lot of the trust is built for their professional relationships. And the other really cool thing about this is like, you would just, okay. If you were to go out with your, um, let's say Indian coworker and you were drinking, would you open up and just be your true self and say stupid shit and just like be relaxed? Or do you think you would be a little bit on edge because your coworkers? I'm asking both of you. <laughs> I personally, or just what do you think people are more likely to do? No, like what, like how would you react in that situation? I think I'd probably start a little bit closed up. And then as you keep on feeding drinks into me, I'll open up <laughs> to be completely honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like this is a really team dynamics one as well. And maybe company size as well, like the bigger company and 
at conferences and things like that, I tend to be more professional, but the startups that I've worked for, especially a couple of them, um, everybody was actually really, really close and very much friends outside of work and um, much more tight knit. And so then it's, you're much more Mm -hmm. yourself, I think. So it depends. Yeah, that's true. I also want to acknowledge the fact that like this culture of going out and drinking after work, the startup culture um, is really toxic. And I want to acknowledge that because not everyone will feel comfortable going out and drinking. Some people don't drink and that's totally fine. Um, please don't make them feel as if they have to, to, par- to participate. Um, and it's, she does use an example in the book revolving around alcohol, but it doesn't have to be alcohol related, right? What's important here is that if you are out with your coworkers outside of the office, whether it be dinner, um, whether it be drinks, whatever, um, you need to be your authentic self. So don't be so worried about saying stupid shit or, um, you know, you know, mentioning things that are maybe like part of your personal life. People from these types of cultures, these relationship-based cultures, want you to be authentic. They don't care what you say outside of the nine-to-five office. Um, it shows that you are not hiding anything versus if you try to be like very um, like closed off and like, I don't want to say anything, you know, stupid. Um, that to them shows you're not transparent and you're not willing to trust them. So, um, I'm not going to say that translates into everything, right? In the U S I do think this is a much different problem. Um, but if you go to China, for example, it is customary to go out to dinner, um, and just be yourself, right? Like, don't be so worried about saying something you don't think is appropriate. They would rather you be yourself that shows that allows you to build better trust, um, than to be closed off. I thought that was cool. Um, and have you noticed, I don't know how much traveling Kelly, you've done a lot of traveling outside the U S Ali, do you have like an extensive amount of travel experience in Europe, for example? Not at all. Not at all. I've been abroad a couple of times, but, um, only for short times. Unfortunately, I wish I had have had the capacity to travel more, but I just haven't. No one's traveling this year. Yeah, for sure. Um, Do you find yourself smiling at strangers? No. When you travel? (laughs) The the fastest way to make somebody aware that you're American is by smiling at them. That's a very American thing. That's how people can spot that you're an American from like miles away or kilometers away. Um, We're known as what's called a peach culture. People are typically very friendly or soft with others that they've just met. So we'll we'll smile at strangers. We'll openly sh- overshare. I do this all the time. Uh, we'll ask people personal questions like, do you have kids? Are you in a relationship? Um, but after a bit of friendly interaction with people from America, for example, these peach cultures, you're going to hit that hard pit in the center where the fruit protects itself. And it's really hard to break in and make long-lasting friendships. And I've noticed this in the U.S. And that's been really difficult for me. Um But if you have traveled abroad and you try to make friends from other cultures, you might have come across someone from a coconut culture. Oh, yeah. I've noticed this in Germany, and apparently Swedes are like this too, um, but I haven't met too many Swedes yet. People are more closed off when they don't know you, so you're not likely to have like deep personal conversations on an airplane with them. But once you actually break through that hard shell, um, they're much friendlier. You can form really long-lasting relationships. I love that. Again, once again, food for everything. I just love that analogy No, it's definitely food. something that I've seen a lot in my travels since I've stayed in a lot of hostels traveling around and you end up meeting a lot of people from different cultures and just how, of course, I feel like people like hostel culture in general is its own thing and you're likely to meet a lot more people who are already a little bit more on like open 
uh, to meeting others because that's one of the reasons why you're staying in a hostel to begin with. Yeah, let's not forget there are tons of subcultures within the larger culture as well. Again, this is like you don't want to stereotype people. I think this is more important if you're trying to collaborate on a, like a professional level. But yeah, like in terms of like people from a certain culture in general as humans, like I wouldn't lump them all into the same for sure category. Um, but why like? I guess my biggest question reading this section was like, why does trust matter so much to certain cultures? Um, And this was a very privileged thought. um, And I didn't realize how privileged that was until I was reading her example. Let's say that you're a Danish owner of a business and you design women's purses. So you sell 200 purses wholesale to a store down the street. It's just opened um, in Copenhagen. So you give the retailer the purses and she promises that she's going to pay you next week. Well, like, how do you know you're actually going to get paid? Okay, well, the shop owner probably signed a contract promising to pay you. And if she doesn't pay you, you can take her to court because having a signed agreement and a culture with a consistently reliable legal system makes it really possible to do business easily with people that you don't know or don't trust. But if you're trying to do business, um, let's say this time you're um, from Nigeria and you design women's purses in Lagos, um, the legal system is... Um, not the same as it is in Denmark, right? So you can sign a contract, but there's not necessarily the same way of enforcing it if if the payment doesn't come through. So in a lot of cultures, the trust that you have with someone else is your contract. And that was so eye-opening to me. Um, And it was very naive of me to sit here and be like, well, I don't need to be friends with my coworkers. And I don't. And I'm not saying you, you have to, right? But that's why some cultures value trust and personal relationships as they pertain to a work relationship. But just on the the contract side in general, I, if if you've read my book, uh, my freelancing book, you've noticed there is no section on contracts because it is a very American thing. It's a, it's, you know, it's a very cultural specific thing to expect to have a contract between two people for that business relationship. The way a contract represents itself is going to vary from culture to culture. And this is exactly why. Hey, Kelly, remember how we talked about AWS Amplify at the beginning of this episode? You mean the suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps? Yeah, and you can use your framework or technology of choice on the front end. And since we're talking about React, we want to be sure to point out that there's a free React tutorial offered by Amplify. What will the tutorial show me? You'll learn how to build a React app and quickly get up and running with things like hosting, authentication, and manage GraphQL. What else? You'll also learn how to build serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. That sounds great. It seems like Amplify is built in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers to be successful. That's because you can use your existing skill set to build real-world full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around back-end, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. Perfect. Where can I find the tutorial? You can check how to build a React app with Amplify at awsamplify.info slash ladybug. Again, that's awsamplify.info slash ladybug. As much as we'd love to pretend we're all perfect developers, the reality is we're going to make some mistakes. And that's why I love that Honey Badger has my back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error, uptime, and check-in monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, and it's super affordable too. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts real time with everything you need to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in the code so you can quickly resolve the issue. You also get uptime and check-in monitoring to let you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go missing or silently fail. With their collaborative tools, 
you'll also be able to communicate with your team on specific issues to keep track of where you left off if the same issue occurs again. So go check out HoneyBadger at HoneyBadger.io. Tell them your friends on the Ladybug podcast sent you when you sign up, and you'll get 30% off for six months. They'll apply that discount to your account with no credit card required. Again, that's HoneyBadger.io. All right, let's wrap things up by talking about one other really cool area that I didn't realize different cultures perceive differently, and that is time. Did you did you know that different cultures perceive time differently? Tell me more. <laughs> there are two different types of cultures as they relate to time. So we've got M-time or monochromatic cultures, um, and we've got polychronic cultures. So M-time cultures view time as tangible and concrete and generally linear. So this would be places like Germany, Switzerland, Japan, and Sweden. But in contrast, polychronic time cultures or P-time cultures, they take a more flexible approach to time. Um, so in general, like someone from Saudi Arabia, Nigeria, Kenya, or India would suggest a general time to me and not nail down an exact time. So like this was really relevant to me living in Germany where I found appointments and train schedules and things like this. They're really enforced generally and, and time is linear and people stick to a specific time. But if you are a farmer in the Nigerian countryside, for example, it doesn't really make a difference if you start work at 7 or 7.50. What matters is your ability to adapt to changes in your natural environment. Um, and what we can do now is take these concepts of time and and turn like take them in the context of meetings. We have a lot of meetings. No one likes them, but the reality is that we have them. So in the U.S. or Germany, for example, again, a monoch- monochronic time culture, Um, you would probably see like an agenda circulated ahead of time and you would stick to the agenda. And if someone like was having a side conversation in the middle of a meeting, it would be very inappropriate. But a culture with flexible time is more like an evergreen tree. So they might have an agenda at the beginning of a meeting um, and it's just the trunk. It serves as the trunk of a tree, but there's no expectation that your meeting is going to progress linearly. So you might have subgroups that break out within the room. Someone might leave to take a phone call and things like this, and it's just normal. Um, so I just found that super cool. Now I'm saying cool too much. It's super interesting. I'll go back to interesting. Drink. Um, because I just, I don't know. Like, I just assumed that all cultures were linear in time. And like, I've had this problem where I'll I have friends from different cultures and they're always late or like, oh, okay. I had this example. I had this friend in Germany and she was from Brazil and like, she invited me over for dinner and she was like, okay, be there at six. And I show up at six. She was like, why are you so early? Like people aren't going to get here for 45 minutes. And I'm like, you told me to be here at six. Right. Um, yeah. So it's just, you know, I've had these issues in my personal life and not known why. Like, why? Like, you told me to be here at six, I'm gonna be here at six. But for them, if they say six, they mean 6 30, 7, around there. That's me. I'm always fashionably early to parties. I think just to like deal with these different kinds of scheduling scales, just be flexible in your work style. Again, have discussions with your team, acknowledge the fact that people might be accustomed to working differently, um, and just create an agreement. But that, yeah, that's uh, those are the five. I said we were only going to cover four, but guess what? We covered five. And those were five five of the points on the scale. Um, there's so much more in this book. And I highly encourage you to physically read it because she has case studies and, and graphs and stuff of that nature. But there are three other metrics that she goes into, which are persuading, leading, and disagreeing. But what's really cool is like once you actually have all of these, you can plot cultures. Like you can physically map out on a scale where they fall. And when you have two cultures, let's say you take you have a team of three different cultures uh, and you can plot each culture on this chart. 
And where you have a large gap between two cultures' lines means you are generally going to have disagreements or conflicts. And at that point, it allows you to pinpoint the areas, whether it's communication or persuading or things like that, that you need to work on. Um, but, with, you know, I just want to kind of wrap it up and say, like, we're all motivated by the same fundamental needs. And, you know, every individual is different, so we have to recognize it. But yeah, again, the culture that we're raised in has impacts on how we view the world and, and people develop these biases around what is considered good communication or which arguments are stronger than others. Um, so just be conscientious of the fact that not every culture experiences life um, personally or professionally the same way that we do. Uh, and learning about other cultures can really help us build these effective multicultural teams. So Emma, I have a question for you. If I wanted to go back and watch your talk where could I do that? So I was so sad because the first time I gave this talk, I loved it. I had a great time. I got really good feedback. And like the recording was abysmal. Oh no. The audio didn't come through. It was, it was awful. Um, luckily I gave this talk twice more. I gave it once with Smashing Magazine and I gave it once with, I'll find it. We'll link it in the show notes, but I gave it on a live stream. Oh, I gave it a third time, a fourth time too for Microsoft Diversity Day. We'll link them all in the show notes, but there you've got options. Nice. Amazing. Nice. It's really kind of hard to like discuss these things without visualizing the graphs. That's one thing I liked about the talks is like my slides had charts on them. So if you are able to, I would highly recommend like go check out the slides because they're very interesting. I'm done saying (laughs) that word. I'm done. Should we talk about shout outs? Let's talk about (laughs) shout outs. Emma, what is very interesting to you this week? (laughs) Um. I, I want to shout out my partner because he is so freaking patient with me. He's from Belgium. And this goes back to like, we have miscommunications, not all the time, but like we've had miscommunications because I am very explicit and overly redundant. And um, like, we were also coworkers. So like, we know how it is to be professional, um, like communicate professionally as well as like communicate personally. And like, God, he's so patient with me. Um, so I just want to shout him out and say, thank you. <laughs> Uh, how about you, Allie? Mine is so random and less important than that. But um, I have this planner that I got. It's like a paper planner. It's such a, I don't know, low technology thing. But I have been really enjoying it and writing everything down and having my schedule for the day out on paper because I have a lot of meetings now. So it's the full focus planner. I'm liking it. These are nice. I just yeah. them up. It's got like weekly things and quarterly things and daily pages. Big fan. Oh, okay. I need the daily planner because I cannot focus. Yeah. And you get to pick like a date, big three and another to-do list and it has your schedule. I like it. This is, a, this is a nice site. Yeah. The Lily Pulitzer daily one was the one I used to use all the time and I loved it, but it was so big and bulky. These look a little nicer because they're like moleskin almost. It's also powered by Shopify. Ooh, which leads me into my shout out. <laughs> it's relevant, I promise. So I get a lot of questions about doing Shopify theme development, how to get started. And by the time this episode goes out, I think we'll be halfway through. But I am partnering with one of the developer advocates over at Shopify, and we're doing four uh, live streams on Twitch going through the Shopify theme development process. So the first one's going to be intro to themes, and then we're talking theme build tooling. So the like getting a build process in place, um, building out specific theme functionality versus using an app, and then lastly, theme performance. So they're going to be live on Twitch, but of course it's Twitch, so you'll also be able to go back and watch the other two that have already happened, potentially three. I don't know when this actually is airing. Either way, 
I highly recommend checking it out because it's going to be a lot of fun and I've never really done Twitch streams before. So first time for everything. I remember my first Twitch stream and I was like, so it was with Jason for Learn with Jason. And like, I did not understand the concept of like stickers. Like people can post noises and stuff. I'm very confused by it. I had the same thing when I was, uh, my first one was with him as well. And I have this this screenshot of uh, Thomas and I attempting to set up our Twitch stream for it. And somehow, like, he was sharing his screen to do it and somehow it messed up where it was showing the two separate windows, like my webcam and his webcam, but it was just my face stretched between the two of them. And it was, like, the top <laughs> half of my face. It is, it's a it's a very beautiful screenshot. I'm going to hold on to that one That's forever. Really awesome. <laughs> if we find that, I'm going to tweet that from the Ladybug account. I, ha- I can send it to you. I have it. <laughs> well, if you liked this episode, definitely tweet about it because we really, we do read every single one of your tweets. We really appreciate it. But not only that, we're going to be giving out one copy of The Culture Map by Aaron Meyer, which is the book that inspired this uh, podcast episode. Um, We're going to give that away to to someone that tweets. So make sure that you do that. We also post podcasts every single Monday. So make sure that you're subscribed to be notified and leave us a review. With that, I hope you all have a great day. Bye. Bye.